0: Cider has a long history in this country, basically as old as the Mayflower itself. You may have heard it was North America's number one drink at the start of our colonial colonies and on into the 1800s. And you would have heard right. Here's part one of a special history segment showcasing how cider has helped keep people healthy and sane and won elections well up until its tragic downfall and then fabulous rebirth. Let's go. Welcome to Courage and Other C-Words. I'm your host, Jen Rumertel, Martel, and thanks so much for joining me today. So I'm going to do something a little different this time around. For those of you who follow cider and are big fans, you will probably already know some or all of what I'm about to talk about for the next two episodes. But for others, the history of hard apple cider might not be something that you've thought much of. So I thought it would be fun to switch it up a little bit and do a small history lesson for the history of cider in the U.S. at least. We could start at the very beginning and how Julius Caesar might be the first person to actually refer to cider as an alcoholic beverage in the printed record. But I really don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now and might just save that for a rainy day in the future. We'll see. So in honor of our annual conference that took place in Virginia last week and for Bay Area Beer Week that is going on right now, I thought it made sense to sit down and talk a little bit about when and why cider, above all others, was the number one drink in America way back when. Because in early New England, up until about the mid-1800s, cider was consumed by all members of the family, being easily made from local apples, super cheap and usually cleaner and safer than the water in the well due to the primitive filtration methods at the time. And it's funny because I always blame Prohibition for cider's epic decline in popularity and presence in the U.S. That was back when I was sharing the story at beer festivals and tastings. But it actually seems to be a more complicated story. And I'm excited to share what I've discovered and give some time and space to Cider's story here in North America. Though I probably don't have to mention, but will anyway. When I say cider, I'm referring to the alcoholic drink made with apples. So Legally, on our packaging, we need to call it hard apple cider. I cannot be bothered with all of those words right now. It's stupid that there has to be a distinction in this country between cider and hard cider, for which I will cover later in the next episode as it directly relates to the drink's history. It's very apropos. So, For all intents and purposes, cider will be considered just the alcoholic one for this episode and, if you haven't noticed, in this podcast in general. And I know much of the world calls cider cider as the alcoholic beverage and laugh at us that we have a distinction, but there you go. I also want to make clear at the beginning of this that actually very few words in this episode are my own. I have done a little cutting and pasting, as others who actually spent a great deal of research time do tend to say things better than those who don't. I won't list all my sources here, but I have put them in the show notes as a reference, and of course, to give credit where credit is due. I have to say, it is not a fully MLA annotated bibliography, but at least I have included the titles and links. I'd say that the links are there if you're interested in reading more, but honestly, I took much of what each had to offer. For Though the history of cider in the US is long, it's not exactly that extensive from sources at least I could find. So may you interpret my direct quoting of your work as a compliment, of the highest, and not any desire to show that I did any of this work myself, except aggregating all of the wonderful stories to share in this narrative. So with that out of the way, let's start at the beginning. This episode will cover everything up to the first orchards in North America, and then on into the beginning of the decline in cider drinking. The time in this country when the cider was flowing, and the apples were thriving. But to tell the history of cider in the U.S., we do need to begin with the history of apple growing in this country. Since, of course, without apples, there would be no cider. So, for most of the 17th and 18th century, immigrants to America from the British Isles drank hard cider in its variants. In the industry, England is actually known as kind of one of the motherlands of early cider. And naturally, apples were one of the earliest known crops in the English-speaking New World, where ships' manifests show young saplings being carefully planted in barrels and many hopeful farmers bringing bags of seed with them across the ocean. Within 35 years of the settlement of Jamestown, in what is now Virginia, in 1607, the land was put to plow to grow tobacco, of course, which provided a source of revenue for the colonists and made British settlement a success in the New World after several failed attempts. However, other edible crash crops were planted, like rice, maize, and apples, since such would have had value in the markets of growing cities across the pond, like London, Edinburgh, Dublin, and Cardiff. So the earliest known provision of cider-making is believed to have been carried on the Mayflower itself in 1620. Halfway through the journey, the ship was caught in a storm, and one of its beams cracked badly enough to warrant the consideration of turning back to England. The great iron screw taken from a cider press helped brace the beam to keep the ship from breaking up, and did it long enough to make it to the New World. And nine days after the Puritans landed, and perhaps in great thanks for having survived the journey at all, a man by the name of William Blackstone planted the first apple trees in the New England colonies. It has also been noted that these trees bore fruit that were not great for eating or cooking. So most of those early apples inevitably made it into cider. Apples are actually not considered indigenous to North America. There is record of some crab apple trees existing but no comment on whether the First Nations tribes already here consumed cider from them. Other fun documented references to cider and apples in those early years of the American colonies include, in New England, John Winthrop, who was the governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, in 1632, recorded his tenants paying their rent on Governor's Island in two bushels of apples a year. And we all have a pretty good idea where those apples went. And in 1634... Lord Baltimore instructed settlers of the new colony of Maryland to carry across the sea kernels of pears and apples, especially of Pippins, pearmains and Deacons, for making thereafter of cider and perry. Huge hit, apparently. Unfortunately for the colonists leaving for the New World, they faced an uphill battle in planting some of their favorite foods, including apples. None of the colonists knew that the honeybee... Is also not a native insect to America and knew absolutely nothing about the husbandry of orchard mason bees, something nobody would put to use until about three centuries later. In Europe, honeybees were and still are the main means of pollination for apples, cherries, and pears. And thus, some of the earliest pleas for new supplies sent home to Britain by Jamestown colonists were for beehives. So, not surprisingly, the first recorded shipment of honeybees to America was recorded in 1622 in Virginia. And I do find some humor in the fact that colonists came f- with their seeds and then had to like, put in panic orders back home for the bees just to keep those crops going. That must have been a sad realization. Additionally, the businesses of diseases, pests, and temperature all presented challenges to growing apples in Eastern America. Normally, tent caterpillars are parasites to southern crab apple trees, black cherry trees, choke cherries, beach plums, and the sweet crab apple. The caterpillars made no distinction between these and the European-derived young apple, cherry, quince, plum, and pear trees the colonists had, which had evolved no defense mechanism against moth larvae that would form large silk bags on the branches and destroy the tree by eating the leaves. As an aside, if you're from the East Coast, you will probably have had much interaction with these tent caterpillars and their gross nests that sometimes completely consume the trees that they reside in. I remember when I was younger, capturing those super, super fuzzy caterpillars and trying to make homes for them in buckets. They, of course, all eventually died because I had no idea what I was doing, though I do remember receiving little rebuke from my nature-loving parents. I guess a few less tent caterpillars in the world is not the worst thing. Also, fungi like cedar apple rust destroyed trees' abilities to produce fruit since it infects the buds they grow, making them sterile. In the case of British or French-derived apples, it proved disastrous since, unlike native malice species, it had no immunity and would eventually die, covered in cankers. Sad. But, fun fact about America, leaving the trees without a surrounding fence in the open resulted in attracting nearby populations of black bears, woodchucks, skunks, raccoons, elk, and deer looking for food. Pretty much everybody. So the need for apple cultivars, which would have a much higher yield of apples at harvest time, proved to be paramount so that the entire crop would not be lost to animals. It is a practice that is still going on today, but it apparently began in colonial times. To make matters worse, the climate of the American Southeast also had more extremes, where temperatures would easily exceed 80 degrees Fahrenheit in summer, but fall below 35 degrees Fahrenheit in winter. Most of the cider, cooking, and dessert apples brought from the oceanic climate of Northwest Europe were not bred for sweltering humidity or late-season frosts. Later in the North, settlers from the British Isles had to adapt many of their husbandry practices as well because winter temperatures were bone-chillingly cold, with long snowy winters and the first frost coming much earlier. In the South, despite the longer growing season, it was a great task just to get apples and pears to live long enough to bear fruit, let alone make cider or perry. And whatever cider they did produce was likely sour and of poor quality. So the earliest known, full-blown successful orchard in America began in Massachusetts Bay Colony near Boston. New England was more successful in producing the first viable apples as evidenced by the fact that the oldest known and named apple varieties come from Massachusetts Bay Colony, Plymouth Colony, and Providence Plantation. Roxbury Russet, in 1634, High Sweet by 1630, and Rhode Island Greening in 1650, all of which still survive and are still used for cider making and baking of pies. John Endicott, another New Englander, began one of the first known nurseries for apples and pears, and in 1648, he's recorded as selling 500 young trees to a William Trask, for which he received 250 acres of land. Approximately 20 years earlier, it is believed that he planted a garden full of fruits selected for alcohol production near what is present day Salem, Massachusetts, of which one example, pear tree, still survives as evidence. Later, as his trees matured, he began to sell them to new settlers and their bounty of cider and perry to local taverns, beginning one of the earliest examples of large scale propagation in the New World of apples and therefore cider. By the 1660s, regulations on the consumption and distribution of alcohol were being put into place, and fines were being levied for drunkenness on hard cider in Massachusetts Bay Colony, in Maryland, and Virginia, among other places, going by the court records. In 1676, Nicholas Spencer, the secretary of Virginia, House of Burgesses, speculated on the cause of the riots of the past two years as keeping the law proved difficult. All plantations, he said, flowing with cider so unripe drank by our licentious inhabitants that they allow no time for its fermentation but in their brains. As time passed, settlers began coming from different regions, which ones depending on which colony they chose to settle in, but most of them came from areas with long-established traditions of apple growing. They came from Sweden, the Highlands of Scotland, Wales, the Netherlands, Western France, the Irish province of Ulster, and by the end of the 17th century, southwest Germany, and parts of Switzerland, with all of the above settling down on farms and requiring apples that would keep well and could be bartered as payment. In 1682, Governor Carteret of New Jersey wrote, at Newark is made great quantities of cider, exceeding any that we have in New England, Rhode Island, or Long Island. It's significant because colonial New Jersey had a colorful mix of British, Swedish, Dutch, and French Huguenots. A thousand hogheads were filled that year in Newark, or about 63,000 gallons. Even those settlers, such as Germans and Dutch, who did not come from cultures that attach value to alcohol made from apples, found that they could sell more of their crop by breeding apples that their neighbors would have wanted. It seems like everyone had their own apple trees back then. Ironically, it is highly likely some of the cultivars brought by Germans introduced genetics that were much hardier to cold weather than the stock they possessed as evidenced by Germany's natural train. Because German weather was back then and still is today often much more snowy than the British Isles. Places of origin for German-speaking settlers in the colonies all have either alpine-influenced climates or ones heavily influenced by cold Arctic air coming off the Baltic Sea in the winter. The crossbreeding of these on Scottish and English and Irish farmlands via pollination introduced genetics that were very valuable to climates, like southern Appalachia which is a mountainous region and in winter gets several feet of snow, even in the present day, we hope. Or Pennsylvania, where colonists had to race the clock to harvest apples in autumn and get them in storage to survive the winter. The local result was a rather motley and bizarre foundation stock from all over northern Europe. By the 18th century, apple cider was a staple at every family table. At harvest, many apples were pressed into cider and the remainder placed carefully into barrels to store through the winter for eating or replenishing supply. Peter Combe, a Swedish naturalist, noted in his travels in 1749 that nearly every home in Staten Island had a small orchard attached. It also could be said that with the primitive nature of some of the well systems in the colonial times, it was actually safer to drink the cider than the water currently available. As an example, this is amazing, in 1767, 1.14 barrels of cider were being consumed per capita in Massachusetts. That's like almost 40 gallons of cider a year per person. It's <laughs> a lot of cider. Compared to colonial elections, today's political process is a somber, serious affair where now people can't even give bottles of water out to people standing in line on election day. It's ridiculous. Candidates back then often engaged in a practice called swilling the planters with a bumbo, which basically entailed buying voters drinks to get them in a favorable frame of mind before they hit the polls. When a young George Washington ran for Virginia's House of Burgesses in 1755, he didn't shell out for drinks, and he lost the election in a 271 to 40 landslide. Undeterred, Washington ran again in 1758, three years later. And this time, the cider was blowing. Washington's campaign served up to 144 gallons of hard cider and other libations, and Washington cruised into office. In 1775, one in ten New England families, most of them farmers, had a cider mill on the property. It has also been well documented that our founding fathers were particularly pleased with cider. In one of his letters to his wife Abigail, John Adams complained explicitly about the quality of Philadelphia alcohols and being homesick for her cider. The same John Adams was also known to drink a tankard of hard cider every morning before breakfast, and since he lived to be 91, I would have to say that's not too shabby. Thomas Jefferson also grew several varieties of apples in his home in Virginia, and there are records of his wife, Martha Jefferson, overseeing their harvest and fermenting while she was mistress of the plantation. Ciderkin is a watered-down version of cider, could also be found on colonial tables, and was often served for breakfast or to children. Applejack, or apple brandy, made in the North, was made in a very similar manner to Canadian ice cider every winter, and likely would have been very familiar to people like Mrs. Adams as an alternate means to concentrate alcohol when it was far too cold outside to bring out the cider press. Also in 1775, the Battle of Concord, one of the first showdowns in the Revolutionary War, was surely a harrowing engagement for both British troops and American revolutionaries. I'd have to say American militia. I don't even think they'd become revolutionaries at that point. But that didn't mean that either side had to skip its daily mug of hard cider. As the fighting fell into a lull, the sides dropped back into a standoff and local crazy man, Elias Brown, saw a business opportunity. Brown strode through both sides' lines selling hard cider. During this time, the legend of Johnny Appleseed was born, literally. John Chapman, later known As Johnny Appleseed was born in Massachusetts in 1774. Much like the story of Cider, a lot of the history of this man has been forgotten or relegated to legend. Though he was definitely eccentric, walking around with no shoes and frequently preaching the gospel to anyone who would listen, he was also a shrewd businessman, spending years and all of his money purchasing strategic land investments and setting up large nurseries across Ohio and the Midwest. We can thank much of the early orchard creation and propagation of apple trees to him. I won't go into a ton of detail about him now. I might actually be able to pull a full episode out of him later on because he is quite a character. But his story drives home the critical role that apples played in the early decades of this country and how cider followed as the drink of choice. And this trend continued with full force through the late 1700s and well into the 1800s one final cider story for this episode, considered the last hurrah for cider in the historical record of the United States. And it took place in 1840. Because up to that point, though cider was widespread in the U.S., European visitors often wrote disparagingly of America's early cider makers, claiming that they often pressed half-rotten and worm-eaten apples and were haphazard in the way they monitored the fermentation process. Quantity, not quality, appeared to be the overriding value for many American cider makers and most of the cider was consumed at home or bartered locally. But cider was cheap and widely available and had earned a reputation as the common man's drink. It is perhaps no surprise then that in an age of rising populism in politics, hard cider would emerge as the symbol of a candidate courting the common man's vote. So the election campaign of 1840 was a watershed moment in American politics. Voter turnout made eligible voters reach an all-time high with nearly 80 percent of those eligible casting their vote. Can you even imagine that in the year in this current state of affairs where like maybe 30 percent show up? Amazing. Something totally unheard of in modern day elections. It also represented an opportunity for the relatively new Whig party to finally gain control of the White House. Since his election to the presidency in 1828, Andrew Jackson and his Democratic Party had dominated American politics by successfully presenting himself as the party of the common man. But in 1840, the nation was still plunged in a depression and rekindled a bit of nostalgia for the simpler times of the frontier, self-provisioning farms, and local trade among voters. After settling on old war hero William Henry Harrison for their presidential candidate, the Whigs were handed an opportunity when a Democratic newspaper, Suggesting that Harrison was too old to run for president, sneered, Give him a barrel of hard cider and settle a pension of 2000 a year on him, and my word for it, he will sit the remainder of his days in his log cabin. Harrison's supporters seized on the log cabin and hard cider elements of the insult to suggest that Democratic President Van Buren and his supporters were elitists and who disdained the lifestyle of simple self-provisioning cider-making and cider-drinking farmer is ironic since Harrison was actually the one who came from wealthy frontier family and Van Buren came from more humble origins, but, you know, marketing. And voters were won over by the celebration of this seedling apple orchard and its homegrown product. It totally worked. Harrison defeated Van Buren handily. Unfortunately, he then also died in office about a month into his term, but that's beside the point. And while William Henry Harrison and the vast majority of Americans were enjoying their cider— a dark cloud was starting to form on the horizon for the beverage, the temperance movement. But as I've learned, temperance and the prohibition era that followed was only part of the story of the cider's decline. But I will get into all of that in the next episode. And that's a wrap. I hope you've enjoyed this brief change in direction as much as I did reviewing the research. Cider in the U.S. is a wonderful history that mirrors the endurance and grit of a people who have made the journey here raise the orchards, and press the apples into something so enjoyable. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate, and review to help out this little podcast. Five stars goes a long, long way, and I so appreciate the support. I know it says write a review, and that can be daunting, but Apple isn't asking for a novel. A simple, hey, what's up? Cider's awesome. That would be more than fine. And for more information about me and this podcast, visit us online at othercwords.com. Talk to you soon. And thanks so much for joining me today.